appreciate that good singing this morning. Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter number 2. Revelation chapter 2. Isn't it good to be in the Lord's house today? I'm proud that you're here today. Glad that you're able to be here. We've got a few folks in the parking lot. Glad that they're here as well today. And uh, trust that the Spirit of God minister to us where we're at. Amen. I'm glad God works with us where we're at. If He has to wait on us to get in the right place, well, none of us ever get right, but I'm glad He works with us. No matter where we are at in our Christian journey, in our life, I'm just thankful for God's grace. Aren't you glad He provides? Man, that song blessed my heart. I tell you, this whole thing of Christianity for me and for you and for all of us that know the Lord, it began with Him providing. He provided uh, for our sins. He provided the sacrifice. He provided His righteousness where we had naught but unrighteousness. And I'm thankful for His provision. You know, He's never quit providing. I mean, all along the way, He's just always been enough. He's always been more than enough in our lives. We ought to give Him praise for that. Revelation chapter number 2, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Revelation chapter 2, verse number 1, we'll read down to verse number 7. The Word of God says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be with your people, to be in your house, to be, Lord, to hear these wonderful songs that speak and testify of you, how it stirs our hearts, Lord not because of the songs themselves, but because of the Savior that they're about. Lord, help us this morning to uh, train our hearts upon the truth of Thy Word. Help us to have our hearts open to the Spirit of God as He would seek to minister this Word in our hearts and minds. Help us not to look to our neighbor and say, this is for Thee, but Lord, help us to look at ourselves and say, this surely is for me this morning. You are speaking to my heart. Lord, only by that will we be helped today. So help us to have that attitude I pray if there's any under the sound of my voice that are lost and undone that don't know Christ as their Savior and they may have religion, uh, Lord, and they may have riches and they may have respect, but they don't have righteousness because they don't have Jesus. I pray they not leave this place ere they bowed their head and heart before you, confess themselves a sinner and ask Christ for forgiveness and salvation. Lord, I know you'll save them uh, just as you saved me. And Lord, I pray that you'd work effectually in our midst today. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday morning, we spent a little time in Revelation chapter number 1. And I'll admit to you, I had to preach a little fast through it. I joked with somebody, everybody probably felt like they was being sprayed with machine gun fire. Amen. But we wanted to work our way through chapter 1 as an introduction uh, to the next few Sunday mornings. If it's the mind of God, and if, if it's not, if He if he don't ever change His mind, sometimes He changes my mind. Amen. And, uh, if we move direction, well, we'll just follow the Lord wherever He wants us to go. But uh, it's my heart in the next few Sunday mornings to preach through these churches that are mentioned in Revelations chapter 2 
in chapter number 3. But it's interesting to note, before the Lord ever gives these distinct messages to these distinct churches, uh, He first gives a, a message general to all of these churches. And so we spent a little time talking about that last week, looking at what the Lord had said. This morning, I want us to uh, train our attention upon uh, the very first of these messages that's given to the first of these churches that is mentioned. And it is the church at Ephesus. Now, this is not an unfamiliar church to most Bible students. You, of course, have read the book of Ephesians, I trust. And you've probably read in the book of Acts when Paul planted the church at Ephesus. And Paul spent more time at Ephesus than he spent at any other of the churches that he planted. He spent three full years there at the church of, of Ephesus, ministering and teaching them. And uh, in his words, he said with, with uh, tears, night and day, praying for them and ministering to them the truth, the Word of God. When Paul leaves, he warns that church uh, that uh, very soon after his departure, grievous wolves would come in and would want to lay waste to the flock of God. Can I say this this morning? It don't matter how super spiritual we are. don't matter how good our church is. And I think we've got a good church. I ain't going to ask you to amen because I'd be scared who wouldn't amen. But, but I, 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 I think we've got a good church. I think we've got a great church, man. God's been good to us. And, and I'm proud of what God's done here. But it don't matter how good your church is. That don't mean that the devil ain't going to try to destroy it. doesn't mean that it won't have faults and flaws and failures and everything. I'll tell you this. Listen, you're looking for a perfect one. You ain't found one this morning. Uh, this is a place of sinners saved by the grace of God. And uh, it's a place where we're all just praying for God to keep working on us, making us more like Jesus. Paul had warned that grievous wolves would come in, and certainly they had done that very thing. Uh, this letter bears witness and testimony to it. He talks about a group of people called the Nicolaitans. And we'll say a word about that before we're done this morning. He said there were some there that, were, that said they were apostles and were not apostles. Why would a man do that? Why would he say that? Well, because at this time in the church history, the apostles were tasked with giving the truth, the doctrine uh, that God was giving to the church. So they was coming in teaching doctrine, but they were liars. They weren't telling the truth. And these people had found that out. And there were folks that came in trying to morally corrupt the church. And uh, the Bible says that they wouldn't bear them uh, that uh, that were are evil. And so this church was under assault even in early days. Uh, history would suggest to us that Timothy passed through this church after Paul and that even now after uh, John uh, pins down this letter under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, John would then go and pastor at Ephesus for a season in that city. So this is a very familiar church in the Word of God. This is not obscure to us. In fact, it may be the, the most familiar church of all the seven that are mentioned to us this morning. And yet the Lord finds in all of the glowing things that He can say about this church, He finds that there is one thing in particular that this church has a failure and a flaw in. He says, you got your doctrine right, you got your, your, your separation right, you got all these things, you're serving God, but here's the problem the Lord says I have with you. You've left your first love. Now, of course, that's speaking of the love that they had in the early days of their Christianity as individuals and collectively as a church body when they formed together the love and passion that they had for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying, you know, there's a lot that's right about you, but I'm starting to see just a little bit of daylight narrow in. I'm starting to see a little separation in your in your fellowship and in your relationship with the Lord. He says, you better take care of that or else it's going to get worse. 
there's been a lot of discussion as to the meaning of these seven churches. And uh, while I won't belabor the point too much this morning, there's some have taken the view that this these seven churches catalog the, the history of the church throughout uh, Christianity. And I've got some issues with that. I think it fits real well if you're looking at certain ideas about the church. And I think other ways it don't work real well. But uh, other people have the idea that uh, this church, uh, these letters are written only to these distinct churches. And let me say these were literal churches. Uh, that existed at that time. And uh, whenever it says to the angels of the seven churches, talking about the pastors, and uh, literal literal parchments were placed in the hand of literal pastors that went back to literal churches with literal people and literally read the message. There's no question about that. But I've sort of been always of the opinion of this. In as much as you see a progression in these churches, you know, each and every one of these always ends with the same warning. Uh, the Holy Spirit says, if you don't repent, I'll come take away your candlestick. And so I think what we have here is the progression of backsliddenness that takes place in the Christian, in the church, in the community, wherever it might be. These churches keep getting worse and worse. There are seasons of it seems revival and reprieve, but it seems as though they are just on a, a progressive march in, in degrading and decline away from where they once had been. And you know, that makes sense. If that's what the Lord's saying, then when you look at the church in general, we ain't getting no better. Somebody say amen to that. The church public, the church professed, the per church general, whatever you want to call it, ain't getting better, it's getting worse. And so it makes sense that it would have followed this path. But I'd say to you this morning, hey listen, your life and my life can follow that same path. And how does it begin? It begins by leaving our first love. It doesn't begin with some secret sin. It doesn't begin with some great hurt and damage caused by another or caused by the church. It doesn't start... And here's the reason I say that. I've seen people uh, that happen to that get right and stay right and do right and be right. I'll tell you this. There's nothing that anybody can do to you that can stop you from serving God. You can keep on serving God. You can keep on going for least preacher, somebody hurt me, and probably they did. And God will deal with them about that. And I'm not minimizing your hurt. I'm just saying that ain't no reason to give up on Jesus. Amen? Keep going on with the Lord. You can weather all those things. But here is the first step in the degrading of the spiritual life of the believer. It's when they leave their first love. When they allow that little, little, little sliver of daylight to show up between them and Christ in their fellowship and in their communion with Him, that's when things begin to decline. I want us to notice a few things this morning. By way of introduction, let me say a quick word about the description of the glorified Savior here. Something interesting you'll find when you study through these, every single one of these churches gets a different message. You say, preacher, why is that? Because every single one of these churches is different. It's not to suggest the Word of God is not uh, applicable and, and true and immutable in every way to every one of us, but it is to say this, God speaks to them a message that deals with their life. Isn't it good to know the Lord knows where we're at and He speaks to us about what we're going through? But in each of these, you'll find that the description given of the Lord is different. Now, it's not conflicting, it's not contradictory, but each of them, sometimes He's described as Him that has a sharp two-edged sword. Sometimes He's described as Him that what was, you know, was, was dead and is alive and has the keys of David and so on and so forth. And what you'll find is when you put all those together, you have the same description that's given in chapter 1. Each element of the description of the Savior in chapter number 1 is pieced apart and given to each church relative to what they're going through. And look what it says about Jesus to the church at Ephesus. Verse number 1, Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith who? Saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. 
Can I tell you what we are all apt to say whenever the Lord starts dealing with us, a preacher gets up, preaches a message, or a Sunday school teacher teaches a lesson, or maybe a good friend comes and, and takes us aside and says, listen, I, I'm troubled, I see some things in your life. You know the first thing that crosses in the mind of your flesh and mine both? The first thing we think is this, who are you to tell me? That's the first, it's natural. We always think, oh, you think you got it all worked out. Who are you to say there's something wrong? In my life. You don't know me. You don't know what I'm going through. Who are you? You think you're so righteous. Can I say to you this morning, if anything I ever say hits you right square between the eyes, it ain't because I'm so sharp and clever. And it sure enough ain't because I'm so righteous. There's only one reason. Because it ain't me saying it, my friend. It's Him that walketh in the midst of the seven golden kings. Why does the Lord give this description? There's many other things He could have said. He wants them to understand who it is that's declaring to them they've left the first love. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty heady charge. If somebody came to me and said, hey, listen, preacher, I, I, I ain't trying to get in your business or anything, but I don't think you love your wife the way you used to. Whoa, wait up. Hold on. What? I mean, I'd take offense at that. I'd say, who are you to tell me I don't love my... And so I think if the Lord's going to say something as distinct as you've left your first love, He needs us to understand who exactly it is that's saying it. Notice three things that are described here just by way of introduction. The first, the Bible says this, He that holdeth the seven stars in His hand. He speaks of His persistent presence. He's close. He's with them. The Bible says here He's in the midst of them. Can I tell you this this morning? We may, If there's anybody that's going to know whether we've slipped away from Him, it's going to be Him that knows it. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about allowing our, our the, the, the fires of our devotion to Him to, to grow cold. If there's anybody that's going to know it, He's going to know it. You know why? Because He's close. He's present at all times. There may be things in your life or in my life that if they got wrong, somebody the, the people in the church house, they wouldn't know it. I mean, let's be honest about this. We see each other a few hours a week, right? But more time do we spend away from each other than with each other. And there might be something wrong in your life or in my life. And, and the other person might not never know. But you know the Lord, He's always in the midst. He knows. He sees what's going on in our lives. If anybody could speak to this, He could. And then He says this. He says that holdeth the seven stars, and I like this, in His right hand. The right hand being a picture of authority and, and power in the Word of God. And it reminds me of His protective providence. You know, most of the time, this is the difference between receiving rebuke well and receiving it poorly, is whether we're convinced the person cares about us. I can listen to a lot of criticism if I believe that person loves me. If I believe they hate me, it don't matter if what they're saying is true. I'm probably not going to receive it well. Because here's what I'm going to say. In my flesh, I'm not saying this is right. I'm saying this is natural. In my flesh, I'm going to say, well, they don't really feel that way. They just want to criticize me. But when you know somebody loves you and they care about you, you can hear what they say. And that's what he says here. He wants them to understand he's the one who holds them in his right hand. He cares about them. Can I tell you this? The Lord, the Lord wouldn't, wouldn't do anything that, it, that, that hurts your feelings or that grieves you or that makes you sorry, except it's for your own good and for his own glory. He cares about you. He's the one that holds you in his right hand. And then notice, I, I like this. It, it says this, who walketh in the midst of the golden candlesticks. I see his perfect perspective. He's close and He cares, but then I see that He considers. Because He is close, He has a perfect vantage point from which to assess our strengths, our weaknesses, our sins, our failures, and our successes. Don't nobody know you like Jesus knows you. 
That's the truth. Nobody knows you like Jesus knows you. He knows everything going on in your life. And listen, if there's something wrong, there's been times that I've criticized people unfairly. And every once in a while, being a pastor, there's been times I get criticized. I know that's hard to imagine. But but every once in a while, I've been criticized. A lot of times I've deserved it. Once or twice, it's probably been unfair. But you know the Lord, He's never He never judges a person's life unfairly. He never comes to you and says something's wrong, but it ain't wrong. He never comes to you and says something needs to be done that don't need to be done. He never comes to you and says something needs to stop but what it needs to stop. He has the perfect vantage point. So I'm saying this to you this morning. It, it ain't me. I didn't come. I probably, you, you can look at my notes. Your name ain't nowhere in them this morning. But I am saying the Holy Spirit and the Son of God Himself, He knows your life and my life. And you'll find this morning that He is the perfect one to speak this message to our hearts. So, what do we find here? Well, I find a few things. First thing when I read this passage I notice is it opens with a word of commendation. I'll tell you this, if I was the church at Ephesus and the preacher's up and he's reading this message from John uh, the Apostle and it's it's inspired of the Holy Ghost, I, I, I'd be feeling pretty good for the first portion of it because listen to how it starts. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And I can see everybody sitting down in the pew saying, oh, come on, come on. Go ahead, preacher, go ahead. They love that mess. You know why? This is the Lord pointing out the things that were right in their life. He goes on to say in verse number 6, He says, This thou hast that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Earlier, back in verse 3, he said, You've born and, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. There was a lot that was right in this church. And the Lord goes out of His way to point to it. Now, somebody's going to say, Well, preacher, that's good, but how does that help me this morning? When we realize what all can be right and that something can still be wrong, it humbles us. Our problem is we have this holistic view about spirituality where we imagine if one thing's right, everything must be right. You see this perspective towards uh, personalities in modern Christianity. They'll get up and they'll say something right and people will then assume everything's right about it. Uh, listen, I got news for you. They're, they're, uh, anybody can say, I mean, listen, even, even Balaam, even in Balaam's disobedience, he said some things that were true. I'm saying just because one thing's right, that don't mean everything's right. And just because one thing's wrong, that don't mean everything's wrong. The Lord points out some things that are right. Well, what was right with this church? Well, notice first their service was right. He says, I know thy works. That speaks of the fruit of their service. These weren't lazy people. These were people that were doing something for God. That's what a work is. A work is the product of your service. Listen, I got news for you. We ain't saved by works, but we are saved unto good works. We, we, we are foreordained unto good works to walk therein. God didn't save none of us to be lazy. God didn't save none of us just to sit. God saved all of us to serve in some capacity. How you serve God may look different than the way that I do. There may be things that you can do that I can't, vice versa, but we're all to be serving God. And these were not lazy people. They were serving God. By the way, it's interesting to note that he says this to every single one of the churches. He says, I know thy works. I know thy works. I know thy works. Now here's what everybody likes to say. Don't we like to say this? We like to say, well, God looks on the heart. I understand what the Lord said through Samuel uh, to, to Jesse, David's father, in the Old Testament. I've read it just like you have. And I understand he's saying that man look upon the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. Here's what he's saying. He's not saying God don't look on the outward appearance. He's saying God also looks on the inward appearance. But when God is assessing these churches, and I just think we need this little bit of simple truth, He doesn't say, I know your love. 
He doesn't say, I know your worship. He doesn't say, I know your devotion or your dedication. He says, I know thy works. Evidently, God cares what we do for Him. So I, I, I see the I see the fruit of their service. But then I see the fervency of it. The Bible says, and I labor. Now it's one thing, I mean, there's easy work and there's hard work, but all labor is labor. And the idea being the perpetual, devoted, consistent uh, you know, work and, and investment of their time and energy. These weren't just people uh, that did the easy work. They weren't just folks that just reached for the low-hanging fruit. These were people that were doing the hard work of serving God. Can I tell you, there is, uh, there's very little of serving God that's glamorous. That's the truth. There's very, very little of serving God that's glamorous. There may be little snippets here and there where God permits a man to, to be seen for, for his devotion or his dedication. But the vast majority of Christianity, you know what it is? It's labor. The vast majority of serving God is unseen and very often it's unrecognized. And, and if I'm being honest, very often it is unsatisfying to your flesh. If you're looking to your flesh to be satisfied by what you do for God, that may be why we're dissatisfied because the flesh won't ever be satisfied by serving God. It's only satisfied by the exaltation of self. And so much of Bible Christianity, I'm talking about serving God, living for God. I'm talking about our prayer life. I'm talking about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about studying the Word of God. I'm talking about loving on folks that ain't easy to love. I'm talking about being patient with folks that ain't easy to be patient with. I'm talking about keeping our eyes on Jesus and not on others. So much of that, it's labor. It's labor. It won't be something that men stand up and clap for, but it is something that God takes note of. He says, I know your labor. So, And then he talks about the faith of their service. He says, thy patience. Now, patience is the necessary product of faith. Where faith doesn't live, patience can't exist. Because patience is the, is the settled waiting for of God to bring about a matter. That's what biblical patience is. It's the settled, satisfied waiting of God to bring about a matter. And here's what he said. He said, you're not rushing to try to do it your own self. You're patient. I see the faith that you have. Uh, There's so much of the Christian life of modern Christianity that doesn't even require faith to live. It operates totally in the flesh. But to serve God when it's not easy and to serve God when we often don't see outward fruits. Uh, by the way, you know, the Lord didn't say my meat is to, is to, to uh, you know, get a lot of applause and get a lot of praise. He didn't say my meat is to win the whole world to me. He didn't say my meat is to build a great large ministry. He said my meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. Sometimes serving God. I hate to break this to us, but it takes faith. It's not going to be easy. We can't operate in the flesh and expect it to to work appropriately. And so he, he talks about their, their service, the faith of their service. These were people that were serving God in faith. So he talks about their service. Then he talks about their se- separation. He says, How thou canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Later on he says in verse 6, This thou hast that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This was not a carnal church. They were a separated church. Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, separation distinctly means the abandoning of things that do not please God and the cleaving to God Himself and the things that please Him. That's what separation is. If you get one without the other, you ain't going to have proper balance in your life. Some folks want to separate from everything that's ungodly, but not do it in the energy of the Spirit and unto Christ Himself, and they become Pharisees. Some people want to separate unto God Himself, but drag the whole of the world uh, along with them, and they become permissive, and they become ungodly, and they become carnal and polluted. Uh, The fact is, separation requires both sides. And these people had the right kind of separation. First, I noticed they were uh, they were morally separate. They had moral separation. You say, what do you mean? Thou canst not bear them which are evil. I mean, this was a church that didn't tolerate no guff. 
It didn't tolerate no nonsense. It, it, I, I mean, if there was somebody living publicly unrighteously in their church, they dealt with it. Let me say we ought to be like that. Now, I understand we ought to have grace with people. And, and I often hear people say, listen, folks need to grow in the grace of God. And that's true. I wish I could tell you that as regarded the Christian life, when a person got born again, the second they got up their knees, they became a super Christian. But the truth is, they have to grow and they have to be taught and they have to develop. And we all have to do those things. By the same token, when a person's living in public unrepentant sin, and it ain't, I'm not talking about something that there's questions about. I'm not talking about something there's a rumor from somebody, but I'm talking, I'm living this way and I don't care that I'm living this way and you can't change anything. We as believers, and I'm not talking about church and people, although we could talk about that, but that's not even what I'm saying. I'm saying us as believers need to move away from fellowship with that. Sooner or later, you fellowship with the works of unrighteousness, it'll, it'll rub off on you. It'll rub off on you. They, they had moral separation. Number two, they had doctrinal separation. It says that thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. Now it's apparent this is talking about teaching and truth and doctrine because it says you found them liars. doesn't say you've tried them and found them to be morally flawed. doesn't say that you've tried them and found them to be corrupt in their personal behavior and, and life. I think that's what he covers in that first statement. But what he's saying here is there's people trying to teach you things that are wrong and you went to the Word of God, and you've studied it, and you found out that they're liars, and you've separated fellowship from them. In other words, they had doctrinal purity. They had doctrinal purity. It wasn't enough to them just to be in a movement. It wasn't enough to them just to be in a camp. They want to know what the Word of God said. And they did not tolerate any sort of doctrinal impurity in their fellowship. So they had doctrinal separation. But then I noticed they had ecclesiastical separation. Down there in verse 6 where it talks about the Nicolaitans. This thou hast that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There's some other places it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. But to be honest, there's nowhere where God points and says this is what a Nicolaitan is. But I don't think that we're left completely without a clue as to who these people were. The very term Nicolaitan comes from the idea of conquering people, of of gaining victory and gaining an upper hand over people. And can I remind you that one of the things John had just got through writing about, and one of the things that was a real problem in the New Testament church was a belief system called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism had a lot of qualities. And we went back, we, we spent weeks going through 1 John, go back through it, listen to it, you'll hear everything you want to know about Gnosticism and why it is unscriptural. But one of the qualities of it was they believed this idea that they, as, as, as Gnostics, they had this special revelation from God and that they were just a cut a step above everyone else. And here's what it created. It sort of created this priesthood thing where you had the, you had the second tier Christians down here. Then you had the Christians that had really heard from God and they really, I mean, they, they, they had a special revelation from God and it created this dynamic where they held sway and authority over the rest of the people in the church. So in that, here's what they had. They had created a de facto priesthood where they were using it to conquer the rest of the people of God. And here's what God says. I hate that. I hate that. Hey, listen, I, I got news for you. Ain't, ain't, no, no Bible church has a CEO. No Bible church has a director. Here's the office as far as leadership regards in the, in the local church. It's the pastor and here's what he is. He's an under-shepherd. He's a servant of the people. I don't, I don't mean I'm going to wash your car. Well, I guess I would if you ask me nice enough. I might do that. If it ain't cold. If you, if you give me the soap and a little scrub brush, I might do that. I got time. 
But it means that his position is not that of lording. This is the language that Peter used. Not lording over God's heritage, but being an example to the flock. He is a leader in as much as he leads them by his example and his ensample. He exercises what authority is necessary and required in the local church. Because anything with two heads is a monster. But his role is not to set himself up on a pedestal as though here's him and down way below is everybody else. I got news for you. Every one of us is a member of Wall Ridge Baptist Church if, we, if we're a part of it. As such, we all, you don't need me to go pray to God. You can pray to God. You've got the same Bible that I got if you've got a King James Bible. And you can read it and study it. The same Holy Ghost lives in you. It's the same one lives in me. I'm saying this morning, here's, here's what he, he was saying. They were ecclesiastically separate. In other words, in the way their church was structured, they structured it the way that God wanted it structured. Want no hierarchies, want no subverting men, wasn't no governance other than the governance of Christ and what He had ordained through the pastor and the deacon. They had the right kind of church. I believe we ought to have the right kind. I, I think it matters. I know this is an old-fashioned idea for a 33-year-old man to have, but I just sort of believe a church ought to be run the way God says it ought to be run. I just sort of believe that. I sort of believe there ought not be no denomination that gets to take the headship of Christ away from the local church. I, I just sort of believe that we ought to be answerable to Christ and, and Him alone and, and the system that He set up in the local church and local body. I, I just sort of believe the church ought to look like the Word of God says it ought to look. I think that matters. We live in a day where that don't seem to matter to a lot of folks. And, and I ain't talking about nobody in here. You're here. As far as I know, nobody marched you from your front porch with a gun in your back today. You're here because you want to be here. I, I ain't talking about you. I'm just saying in the church in general today in the world, a lot of people have deviated from that pure biblical understanding of what the local church should be. Let me say God hadn't. God hadn't. He still wants church to look like it should. So I, he, he talks about their separation, but then he talks about their steadfastness. Notice what they suffered. He said, you have borne. He said, and hast borne. They had burdens placed upon them. You know, they didn't bail and they didn't bitter. They just bore them. Serving Christ always involves the bearing of burdens. I'm sorry. Listen, some, some health and wealth, some prosperity preacher may have told you when you got saved that you'd never have another problem. They lied to you. Christ didn't lie to you because He never said that. The Bible didn't lie to you because it don't teach that. But if somebody told you that, I'm sorry, they miss him. Now, I will tell you this. Hey, we're more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Ain't no reason to be down in the mouth about it, but I, I am just telling you, part of serving God, it's going to involve burdens. I noticed what they suffered. Number two, I noticed how they suffered. The Bible says, has borne and has patience. They bore their burdens with patience. They didn't try to take matters in their own hands or hasten their deliverance. They patiently waited on God to work. And that's how we ought to be. That doesn't mean when God gives us a clear path of instruction as to what we need to do to alleviate our situation, we shouldn't take it. But it does mean we shouldn't try to take life into our own hands and say, well, I don't care what God thinks. I'm going to fix this situation. I'm going to change my circumstances. Hey, listen, God knows what you're going through. Wait on God. God will do it in just the right way. But then I notice why they suffered. He said, and for my name's sake, hast labored and hast not fainted. You know why they were able to remain steadfast when it was hard to serve God? Because they knew who they were suffering for. They were suffering for Him that had suffered for them. They weren't doing it just for themselves. They weren't doing it for ministry in a generic sense. They, they weren't doing it just for, for those that they loved, although certainly it bears upon our, our, our spouses and our children and our, our family. They knew what they was doing it for. They was doing it for the Lord. You know, I found this. When folks get their eyes off Jesus, they don't last long. I'm just telling you the truth. When folks get their eyes on when, when what they're doing, they're doing to please other people. You, I, I hate to report this to you, but you can't please other people. You can't. 
Uh, sooner or later, somebody's going to have a problem. You know how you're going to stay in? You know how you're going to stay steadfast? You know how you're going to be serving God in 10 years, or 20 years, 30 years, however much time? You know how when you come to your deathbed, you'll be able to do it, having been faithful to God? you got to get your eyes off of people. They will fail. Get them off me. Get them off the people around you. We will all fail you, but Christ will never fail you. Get your eyes on Him, man. Get your eyes on Him. i, I got news for you. I, I, listen, I hope you love me, but I ain't worth suffering for I love you. Well, we're not going to go down that road. But, I, the, but you know, He is always worth suffering. He's worth it. He's worth it. So I, I see their steadfastness. So this begins, and you're going to say, oh, preacher, we're just on point one. Don't get nervous. We're going to hurry. I, I see a word of commendation, but then I see a word of condemnation. So the first thing He does, He commends them for the things that were right. But He says, you know, there is one problem that I see. Verse number four, He says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. There's much we could say about this, but for time's sake, I want to say three simple things that I notice here. First, I notice that their condition was a progressive decline. They left their first love. What that means is not to suggest that they left Jesus, but to suggest that they left the way that they loved Christ at the first. Notice that it doesn't say that they hated Him, nor does it even say that they didn't love Him but rather that their love of Him declined and weakened. You know, we think the danger only comes in when we quit loving Him altogether. But we never get to that point without first loving Him less than we once did. I'm trying to help you this morning. I'm telling you, here's where you catch it. You don't catch it when you're bitter and angry and just about out of church. You catch it that first time the Holy Ghost speaks to you and says, hey, you need to deal with this in your life. And you say, no thanks. That's when you catch it. That's when you catch it. We don't catch it when things have gone too far. We catch it when they first take a step in that direction. This began when they left their first love. I'm going to ask you an uncomfortable question. It's uncomfortable to me uh, as well as to you. And I don't mean for me to ask, but I mean it's it's uncomfortable for me to consider just like it is for you. Do we love Him now more than we ever have? Do we love Him more today than we've ever loved Him before? Answer the question in your heart and your mind. I'm not asking to raise hand or not. I'm saying in your mind, do I love Him more today? Would I do more for Him today than I ever would have done? You, you may not be able to do some things that you wish you could, but are you willing to do anything for Him today? Do you love Him more today? Do you enjoy spending time around Him more today than you've ever done? If you've not, here's what's happened. You've left your first love. Preacher, who are you? To, I ain't saying it. It's in your King James Bible. I'm not saying I've never done it. I, I'm, I'm just simply saying, that's how it begins. It's a progressive decline. Notice number two, I would say it's a purpose departure. They had left their first love. They didn't lose it. They left it. They had not accidentally or unintentionally fallen out of love. They had deliberately diminished in their devotion to Christ. This is something I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to turn your hallmark world upside down. I hate to do it, but I'm gonna have to. But the world has a goofy notion about love. The world's notion about love is purely emotional and nothing else. Now I'll tell you this, man. Love involves emotions. Sure enough it does. I remember people telling me that when I, when I had a kid, well I'll tell you who it was, it was Brother Kerry. He used to tell me, he used to say, I didn't have kids at the time. He had had, he had had, uh, Levi. He said, man, it's weird. He said, you're going to have that baby. And he said, you're going to have this weird flood of emotion come over you when you see that baby. And I said, really? But what I was really thinking was sissy. 
Then I had one. And I'm sitting there crying, trying to find out if I need to call and apologize to Carrie for my bad spirit as I'm weeping looking at this little baby. Hey, love has emotion, but love isn't emotion. It, it has emotion, but it isn't emotion. It's more than that. John said we're to love indeed and in truth. The world has this concept like, oh, we just fall out of love. And if you fall out of love, you just walk off and you leave and find somebody that makes you feel fuzzy and warm. You know, people eventually learn better than that. You know why? Because they learn that marriage doesn't involve feeling fuzzy and warm all the time. And sooner or later, you're going to realize you're either going to determine by the power of God, by the grace of Christ to make it work, or you're not. The truth of the matter is this. Love is true in that way in all respects. I'll admit to you, confession's good for the soul. There's days I wake up and I don't feel no more saved than a goose flying through the air. Man, I, I can't feel God within a hundred miles. I'm in the flesh and I'm angry and I'm, I'm frustrated and I'm discouraged. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. She has to live with me. But I'm glad to know even on those days, He still loves me. And just because I wake up feeling out of sorts, that don't mean He's given up on me or thrown me over in the ditch. He's still with me and He still loves me. And I, I'm just saying this, you know what love is? When you wake up feeling like that, get up and go on and serve God anyway. Because you know He's worth it. They had deliberately left their first love. And then notice this, their condition was a personal decision. He says, thou hast left thy first love. God had not left them. Nobody had dragged them away from Him. They had left Him. It was their personal decision. Another one of these uncomfortable statements. You ready? You and I are as close to God as we want to be. No more and no less. That's not a statement of criticism either, by the way. That's true. If somebody's really close to God, that's true. If they're really far away from God, that's true. You know what the Lord has already said to us? Draw nigh unto me and I'll draw nigh unto you, saith the Lord. We are as close to God as we desire to be. Now that's a convicting thought because we probably all have to admit we're not as close to God as we ought to be. I don't say it to criticize you. I don't say it to condemn you. But I do say it to convict you this morning in understanding this truth. If we want to be closer to God, we can be closer to God. And this distance that had grown between them and the Lord, you know why it had grown? Because they had allowed it. They made that choice. Nobody did it to them. I've, I've, in, in 10 years of pastoring, man, I've met every casualty of church that you've ever met. And I understand. I've been hurt before. You've been hurt. I I understand all that. But I've met folks. I've knocked on their doors. I've I've visited with them. I've prayed with them. Preacher, I'll never go back to church. Somebody hurt me. Somebody hurt my feelings. Somebody this and that. Listen, I understand. Sometimes we get hurt. But that ain't no reason to walk away from Christ. And ain't no reason to walk away from His people and from His church. The truth is, when we walk away, ain't nobody got blown out of church. Ain't nobody got dragged out of church. And nobody got driven out of church. If we've left, we've chosen to. And in our fellowship with Him, He ain't going to abandon us. He ain't going to wait until we get up, go to the bathroom, and then bolt out the door. He's there. He's present. And if any distance has grown, it's been us that's allowed. So I see a word of condemnation, but then I see a very simple word of counsel. Here's how you get right. It's very simple. I'm glad. If it wasn't simple, I couldn't do it. I need simple things. But God made it real simple for people like me. And here's what He said. Four things. Number one, we need to remember. He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. The memory's a powerful thing. And I understand we, we might feel as that, well, my memory's not as good as it used to be in this and that, but God makes it real simple because we don't have to remember what we ate for breakfast 40 years ago. All we got to remember is how we used to love. And it begins by being, you know what remembrance is? It's honesty. It's honesty. Memory has a funny way of rewriting things sometimes, doesn't it? 
Uh, people can remember things different. Most like criminal criminal psychologists will tell you this that that you know. 50 people can witness an event and if you ask them immediately after it, they'll have a pretty close statement. If you come back a week later, they'll have it a little bit, a little bit different. A month later, it'll be a little bit different. The memory can rewrite itself. And you know why? Because very often the memory is trying to run away from things. You know what, what it really is to remember from whence we are fallen? It's to get honest. It's to get honest with God about where we used to be and where we are now. If, listen, I, I'm, please, please understand I don't mean this in a bad spirit. But if you didn't come to be honest with God this morning, I can't help you. These people can't help you. Nobody can help you. God in heaven can't help you if you won't be honest with Him. If you came for any other reason than to be honest before God about, about where you stand, then I hate to tell you, but it's been a waste of time for you this morning. I hope you enjoyed the singing. I hope the preaching helped you. I, I, but, but truthfully, if you won't get honest, then God can't deal with you. We've got to get honest. We've got to remember. Number two, it says not only to remember, but to repent. He says, remember from whence thou art fallen and repent. Now what is repentance? It's a deliberate change of the mind and of the heart that produces, if appropriate, an outward uh, response. So repentance is not the outward response itself. A person can have an outward response without an inward change of heart. And faith is like that too, by the way. Faith is not an external thing and faith is not a work. Faith is an attitude and choice and disposition of the heart. But real biblical faith will produce something or else it ain't real faith. Repentance will produce a change if it's appropriate. But you know, even in this passage, if all they've done is just left the first love, there probably ain't even going to be no outward manifest. There ain't going to be no liquor to throw away, no dope to flush. There ain't going to be no 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 mistress or or or, or no no person that they've been stepping out with that they have to break things off. With. I mean, all but here's what they have to do: they have to go to the Lord and say, you know, Lord, I've been wrong. I've been wrong. I've been going the wrong way. I've not been getting closer to you. I've been drifting farther away. And God, I'm wrong, and I'm making the decision that I don't want to go that direction. Because that's what repentance is, right? 180 degree change. It's saying, I don't want to go that direction. I want to get back close to you. You've got to remember. And then you've got to return. He says, do the first works. I love how practical the Word of God is. Do the first works. That will, of course, be the result of the repentance that they've committed. But isn't it interesting that God even draws that distinction? He says, here's repentance, and here's the result of that repentance. He doesn't conflate or confuse the two. But it does say if you've really repented, here's what you'll do. You'll go back and do what you did before. Now again, I, I think we can all understand there may be things that we are not able to do today that once we could, but it means that that same love, that same devotion, that same dedication will go back to that. We've got to return. And then he says this, and I think this is important, Brother Ken. He says, I'm glad you're here today. Uh, it was weird all them weeks I was saying, Brother Ken. And Brother Ken, out in the car, you know. But... Verse 7, he says, the, or uh, excuse me, the end of verse 5, he says, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. Now again, what he's saying is if you don't get it right, it's going to get worse. That candlestick, that witness, that testimony you've had, I'll, I'll remove it and it'll be replaced by the next one. By the way, the next church is the suffering church. You know why? Because every son whom the Lord loveth, he chastens. He perfects us through suffering. But I think we have to do this. I think we have to recognize the danger. One of the things that keeps us close to Him is we recognize if we leave Him, danger lies that way. I've used this analogy before, but you know in all the things that God did for Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul in the Old Testament, you know the story, I'm sure you do, about how Mephibosheth was was lame on both of his feet and how he was impoverished down the city of Lodabar and he had been cast out 
essentially of, of the palace and he, he was hopeless and he was helpless. But David, even though Saul had been his enemy, David uh, sent down to Lodabar and said, I want to do a kindness to a son of Jonathan, a grandson of Saul. And he brought Mephibosheth and, and brought him to the palace and made him part of his family and put him a place at the king's table, gave him back all the land that had belonged to his daddy and gave him servants to work that land. What a picture of the grace of God. And you know, in all the things David did for him, you know how 2 Samuel 9 ends? It ends by saying, and Mephibosheth was lame on his feet all the days of his life. Everything God did for that boy, but He did not give him his feet back. You know why? Kind of hard to walk away from the king's table when you can't walk at all. Kind of hard to get up and try to go and maybe sit on the throne yourself when you can't even get up from the table at all. I'm saying this this morning. We need to understand that we've got to stay seated at the table. We've got to stay close in fellowship with the Lord. If we get up and wander away, that way lies danger. It ain't going to get better. If you don't deal with it, it ain't going to get better. It's going to get worse. You ain't just going to wake up one day and your sin have been dealt with in your life. You will either deal with it or it will get worse. And it won't stay the same. It will continue down that path. I like how this passage, these verses end. Because when I read through this, I find, and I, this is just a closing comment. Please don't, don't get nervous, but I, I see a word of commendation. He tells them all the things that were right. I, I see a word of condemnation. He tells them what was wrong in their life. I see a word of counsel about how they need to get right and how they can stay right. But then, in the very last verse, verse 7, I see a word of comfort. He says this, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, it's interesting. I told you earlier that if you take all those descriptions of the Lord that are given in chapters 2 and 3 and put them together, it sort of makes the same description that was in chapter 1. If you do that with all these promises, and every promise is different, uh, some of the promises, the, the next one is, is that him that overcometh will not be hurt by the, by the second death. And later on he talks about I'll give him manna. And, and later on he says I'll give him a white stone with, with a name in it which no one knows. And one place he says, you know, that, that uh, they would sit in the, be a pillar of the temple of God. If you put all those together and just sort of read them as one sentence, what you find is a description of what God has done for the believer. It begins by eating the tree of life in the paradise of God. And it ends, that very last one, that, that church laid to see, you know how it ends? It ends seated together, ruling and reigning with God. And you know that's what God does for the sinner. He saves him and redeems him, gives him Christ, gives him a new life, gives him a new glory, and gives him a new name. And, and, and then He's going to take him to heaven one day and He's going to put him in the, in the presence of God and He's going to let him reign with God. And that's what it is. It's a whole spectrum. But it's interesting to me that this one here, it begins with that first moment of salvation. How'd you and I get saved? We got saved when we ate of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Now what was that tree of life? Was it an apple? Was it a pear? Was it a peach? Was it an orange tree? I'll tell you what it was. It was an old rugged cross that was planted on Calvary's hill where the Son of God was given in sacrifice for you and I. Oh, I don't know what kind of tree it was way, way back in the Garden of Eden, but I'll tell you the tree of life in God's economy that matters, and that's Jesus Christ and His cross and His blood that was shed for us. And so why is He saying to Him that overcome? Now what that means, if you, if you face this problem and get it right and get it settled and you overcome that, here's what He says, it'll be like that first time you took that bite. It'll be like it was when you first got born again, when you first tasted and saw that the Lord is good. 
in the grand spectrum, it's talking about what God will do for the believer and how it begins with salvation. But for the church at Ephesus, he's saying you've left your first love, but guess what? You can go back to it. It can be like it was when you first got saved, when you first got born again. You can go back like it was that first moment after you had accepted Christ. And you got up and your life wasn't perfect, but you, you just slap in love with Jesus because you knew what He had done for you. We may, we may have wandered. We all do. I hate to tell you, if you think you're exempt, just wait a little while. You will. We all wander. But I'm glad when we wander, there's a way back home. And I'm glad even when we leave our first love that our first love don't leave us. And all we got to do is turn around and go back to Him. And we can love Him like we always should have and like we used to. Let's bow together this morning. The musician's going to come and play. And I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord. You can do that in your seat if you need to. But of course, this altar is open. And uh, it's a good place. It's a good place to meet with the Lord. My flesh hates it when I go to an altar. That probably means it's pretty good for me. So if, if that's what you want to do, you're at liberty. Come this morning. What about it? Do we love Him more than we've ever loved Him before? Do we love Him? None of us love Him like He deserves to be loved. But can we at least say that we love Him more today than we've ever loved Him before? If we can't, I think we ought to meet Him. And I think we ought to bow our heart to Him and we ought to say, Lord, teach us to love You better and to love You more. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify Christ. We ask it in His name. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Melissa's going to play. The altar's open. You're at liberty. If God dealt with your heart today, why don't you come down? You know, there could be somebody that would say, Preacher, listen to what you said and what you preached. It's good and everything, but if I had to be honest with you, I've never I've never tasted of that tree in the first place. I've never been born again. I've never been saved. Been around Christianity. I sort of know what it is. I know what Jesus did for me, but if I'm to be honest, I, I don't know that I can say with full confidence that I'm saved, that I belong to the Lord.